Where will you podcast, Stilgar? In the studio. I will go with you. Of course you'll go with me. All of my wives will podcast with me. <laughs> and Ganema. Get her, hurrah, at once. Yes, Stilgar. At once. And Irulan? If she wishes to edit. <laughs> like, if, if can we, she edit? I don't even know. She'll, she says she can. <laughs> uh, I feel like she yeah. slept through the Benny Gesserit class on editing podcasts. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And Leo. Yeah. Didn't feel like we'd ever make it here, but here we are. The penultimate episode of our Children of Dune book club series. That's wild for as long as this book is compared to Messiah and also how dense some of these chapters are. Yeah. I know we're only doing 50 pages at a time, but good heavens, some of these 50 page chunks have been uh, an adventure. (laughs) They truly have been. Yeah. And here we are with the end in sight. Yeah. It'll be this episode and we'll be wrapping up the book next episode. Let's, as usual, before we dive into today's reading, make shout out Mapes Brad. Hmm and cover our housekeeping. Hell yeah. Well, as always, today's episode will contain no spoilers beyond the pages and books covered thus far. So, if you haven't read beyond what we've read today, don't worry, we're not talking about it. (laughs) That's right. And a reminder that the best way to support us is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash gomjabar. You'll get cool benefits, like completely ad-free episodes, bonus clips and bloopers every single week, and an invite to our Discord server where you can talk with us directly and get to know our wonderful geeky community. We all (laughs) love Dune. It's what brought us together. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, we must also shout out our Queezats Hatterack-level patrons, Mm. Case Aiken, Matthew Good, Gents, Join us on this Dune Top tonight. We got a still tent. We got food. We got to talk about the future of humanity. You two are the only ones we trust yeah. to help us figure this one out. And I swear to God, if you suggest us killing you, it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have your bodies, all right? The, our plan right. will proceed apace. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> thank you both so much for your generosity. And of course, that thank you extends to all of our patrons Y'all are the reason we can continue to put the time and effort we do into making this show. It's true. Thank you so much. Another great way to support us is to check out our merchandise store at gomjabarshop.com. We've got art and hoodies and t-shirts and tote bags (laughs) and some (laughs) other fun things. So check it out. Custom designed Dune stuff if you like Dune you might find something you like, especially because there's a holiday coming up, probably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look at that. Great way to support us. We appreciate everything. Indeed. Okay, last bit of housekeeping. We love to hear from you. 
as you read along with us. So email us at comjapartpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts. Send us your questions. Mm-hmm. A reminder that once we complete the book club, we will have one final mailbag episode. So check that schedule in the show notes. Make sure you send those emails in in time for us to include it in that final mailbag. Once again, that's comjabarpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, with shout out Mapes smiling ear to ear. So proud of us for taking care of our housekeeping. Indeed. Let's go over today's episode. And again, y'all know the drill. Basically, we're going to start with a summary of today's chapters. Then we're going to dive into our takeaways. And then we'll wrap up with some yummy, yummy spice morsels brought to you today by trying to understand a whole new world religion. (laughs) Indeed. Yes, that's the plan. That's right. But before we dive in, as usual, let's take a short break. Don't go anywhere, folks. We're going to dive into these chapters right after this. See you in a minute. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. Buckle up. (laughs) Let's get into it. (laughs) Today's chapter summary starts with chapter 54 and Lord, this is a banger of a chapter. My this God. Is a winner, if ever there was one. We're at the showdown of the century, Leto 2 versus the preacher. <laughs> Using the word versus lightly there. Son versus father, worm versus Messiah. Wormy boy Ugh. versus Messiah. Indeed. This is also one of the densest chapters in the book, so you might have seen this coming. We're going to be talking about it <laughs> during the takeaways. Right. We've got two Quisatz Hatteracks basically duking it out on a, like, prescient stage. Yeah. So uh, every every line is dripping with internal meaning. We're going to talk about it during our takeaways. For now, let's just kind of briefly summarize what happens. We begin the chapter with Leto, waiting for his father along the path he knows the preacher will take. Feeling more and more confident in his decision to go through with the sand trout transformation... Or at least, like, less apprehensive, because there's no going back, right? Like, yeah. we're told in no uncertain terms that he is <laughs> he is transforming. Yep. He is less human now. He's, he's moving to some new status as a creature, and will continue to do so over the rest of his lifespan, which, as we talked about in the takeaways last time, could be thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Really incredible. And we have this quote. This made my skin crawl, but let's revisit it just for the sake of (laughs) covering all of our bases. Quote, seduced by the spice which he gulped from every trace he found, the membrane which covered him no longer was sand trout, just as he was no longer human. Cilia had crept into his flesh, forming a new creature which would seek its own metamorphosis in the eons ahead. Quote. It's out of sight, out of mind, is how I've always treated this whole thing. (laughs) And this little sentence really brought it into sight and into mind in a way Mm -hmm. that I hate. 
mm-hmm. gross, but important to understand because as we see in this chapter, they talk about how horrible this vision is. What he's doing is is not something he's doing lightly. Now the preacher arrives with a deeply suspicious Asan Tariq, who initially is like, oh yeah, I'm just going to run over this person in the sand using the worm. But of course, yeah. as we know, sandworms stop because they see Leto as a basically a bag of water. So they're like, nah, I'm not going to touch that. It stops. Asan Tariq's confused. He's suspicious. He's like, bro, he's a demon. Preacher, he's a demon. He's a desert demon. Look at him. He's a demon. Yeah. Preacher's like, I'm blind. Stop telling right. me to look Stop at things. Stop telling me to look at things. Yeah, <laughs> god damn it, dude. You're the worst, worst guide assistant. ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hassan is going to get his guide card revoked. Leto's like, Hassan, get get rid of the worm. Let him go. Come back. Join us when you're done. I'm going to talk to talk to the preacher. Preacher hops off the worm. Hassan takes the worm off to release it. And Leto and Paul start to get acquainted. Leto tells his father... First of all, hey, it's me. It's your boy. <laughs> it's your son. And by the way, my skin is not my own. And there's no turning back from the decision he's made for himself. Even though throughout the chapter, Paul's like, maybe there's turning back. And Leto's right. like, there's no turning back, dude. Silly. <laughs> In my flesh, as I mentioned. Awful. And Paul's response to what Leto is telling him is gut-wrenching. Quote, You cannot control the future, the preacher whispered, and the sound of his voice was filled with effort as though he lifted a great weight. Wow. Uh, There are so many lines in this chapter that make you really feel for Paul and everything he went through in Dune and Dune Messiah. This is one of them, you know? Uh, uh. And for what it's worth, Leto knows this. Like the, yeah. Paul is really preaching to the choir here. Leto <laughs> is not trying to control the future, as we discussed a few episodes ago, right. in the same way that Paul did. Paul right. had right. like a vice-like grip on the future, desperately trying to make the okay vision happen, you know, the one where yeah. the least bad things happened. Leto, as we know, is trying to very strategically sort of back into the correct future without being too rigid about the choices he's making. He's learned from his father's lessons. It's so interesting. That's a great point because Leto like is reducing the possible futures to just the golden path versus Paul who focused on the sort of vision he saw, right? Yep, yep. So it's this sort of like reductive method versus Paul kind of fixating and attempting to, as you said, control and use that power to manipulate. Right. Yeah, super, super interesting stuff. And... You know, it's clear that this meeting between Paul and his son is this big decision nexus. Like, we don't exactly get in clear terms what the possible outcomes are, but this is two Kwisatz Hatteraks talking, facing off. (laughs) And we get this sense that, like, this is really a battle of visions and kind of deciding what future will prevail. Quote, "'Either he or his father would be forced to act soon,' making a decision by that act, choosing a vision, end quote. And the overall atmosphere is tense, <laughs> undoubtedly. <laughs> They're not like chilling and hugging and all this stuff, right? Right. But they aren't outright hostile either. Until Asan Tariq comes back. Oh, buddy. <laughs> this fucking idiot. <laughs> and Leto's even like, yeah, I'm waiting for the smell of ozone. 
because I know what Hassan Tariq's eventually going to do. Is Paul going to warn him? That's the question. Paul doesn't. <laughs> Hassan Tariq activates something called a pseudo shield, which generates a planar Holtzman effect that will summon a worm. And it's basically like a deep desert bomb. Beyond the fact that this probably wouldn't fucking work because <laughs> Leto is nigh invincible at this point, it does force Leto to act. And he <laughs> leaps over a blur of motion, snaps Asan Tariq's neck, killing oh him instantly, <laughs> and throwing the pseudo shield far away. Just chucking it. God, so what, a, dumb. what a superhero moment. It is a very superhero. Like it's, straight it, out of the MCU, yeah. you know? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so-and-so grabbing the bomb and throwing it away from the boat before it explodes. You know, it's very, yeah. it's very that. <laughs> really tough look. Paul really could have done a lot more to save Hassan's life, but whatever. It's fine. So rest in peace, Hassan Tariq. You, you were kind of a character. <laughs> And finally, Paul and Leto get into the business of deciding humanity's future <laughs> with that small business taken care of. As I said, we're going to discuss this chapter in depth in the takeaway later. But basically, in short, Leto understands that he has the upper hand because he made this like non-retractable commitment to the golden path. He's, he's got cilia in his flesh, folks. It's gross. <laughs> it's happening. You know, that's, it's a strength because he made this commitment and that's something mm -hmm. Paul couldn't have done or chose not to do. He could have, but he didn't. And although the golden path and its necessary sacrifices are visions that we're told in this conversation Paul saw and was cognizant of, he was unable to commit in the same way that Leto clearly has. And at the end of this chapter, Paul resigns himself to Leto's vision and recognizes his son has made these hard choices that he never could. And we have this quote, this exchange, which encapsulates that moment really beautifully. Paul asks, quote, I will only ask this one thing. Is the typhoon struggle necessary? It's either that or humans will be extinguished. Paul heard the truth in Leto's words, spoke in a low voice which acknowledged the greater breadth of his son's vision. I did not see that among the choices. End quote. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay, moving on to chapter 55. Mm. In this chapter, we join Stilgar and Duncan back in Siege Tabur as they are continuing this argument that has apparently been going on all night. It mm. is now dawn, and the <laughs> argument continues. What exactly is this argument? Well... Duncan is basically trying to convince Stilgar that Alia is possessed and that the old Nabe should escape with Ganema while he can. Duncan has, by this point, seen the truth of Alia's lies and deception and is trying to get Stilgar to understand the danger here. Quote, Everything I've told you can be verified. The communication with Jakarutu was always through Alia's temple. The plot against the twins had accomplices there. Money for the sale of worms off-planet goes there. All of the strings lead to Alia's office, to the Regency. End quote. Fascinating, yeah. 
that's wild. We see just how many different pies Alia and or the Baron have had their fingers in this whole book, basically. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Yeah. Now, Stilgar's response is basically patience. He's like, let's play this by the book, Duncan. I don't necessarily not believe what you're telling me, but I also don't want to jump to any conclusions considering you are very emotionally evolved here. Right. Recall how Duncan at this point knows Ali has betrayed him with other men and Stilgar right, right. is wary of this fact, basically. What's interesting to me here and what kind of stood out was how different of a Stilgar this is, right? Like this is not yeah. the Stilgar from the first book who once took this wild gamble on a lost boy and his mother in the desert based purely off instinct and prophecy, right? Like right. that Stilgar didn't necessarily want to play by the books. And we can see how much these decades have changed him and have made him someone who is kind of like, well, you know, let's take things slow sure. and yeah. uh, follow the rules. And th that definitely stood out to me as a change in Stilgar's character from the man we met in the first book. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I do see a lot of the bureaucracy that he learned under Paul in Messiah. At yeah. Play here, where he knows, like, even if he personally understands that, because I want to allow for the possibility that he suspects that Duncan is clear-headed in all of this. Mm -hmm. There's the political spin of this is no longer neutral territory because he was swayed by a jealous husband, right? And that's a take that will inevitably exist, which he's avoiding at all costs because, again, that upsets the neutrality of his territory. Right. And yeah. it's just very bureaucratic. It's very political. It's smart on some levels, but also that he isn't valuing the honor and loyalty and the bond that he has with Duncan Idaho. Like the right. first person of House Atreides that he ever met, the man who introduced him to House Atreides, that he was like, you are a Fremen, even if you're not from here. Yeah. Like, it is it is so understandable and frustrating from both perspectives. Yeah, that's a great point. He is trying to take the more subtle path, whereas Duncan is just like, who are we knifing next? You know, like, yeah, he's trying to maintain some... <laughs> <laughs> some political savvy here. That's a, that's an excellent point as well. Speaking of who are we knifing next? <laughs> yeah, hello. Hold on, hold your horses, folks. <laughs> so the conversation basically ends at a standstill. Stilgar has refused to budge on any of Duncan's requests. Duncan even is like, let me, I don't know, send a message to Jessica or something. Like she needs to know about her daughter. And Stilgar just shuts it all down, basically. Right. He's like, no. We're going to play it by the book. We're going to do what I say. At the end of the conversation, Javid arrives. I guess he had like a 9 a.m. with Stilgar coming up next or something. Right. And Javid enters the room and Jesus, like pedal to the metal. <laughs> this chapter just takes off. Yeah. In what seems at first like an emotional outburst, Duncan turns to Javid and immediately stabs the dude, killing him <laughs> right then and there in front of Stilgar. Yeah, it's shocking. Oh. It's it's a it's, it's a so real shocking. moment of like, what the <laughs> fuck just happened? So shocking. Of course, a little bit later, 
we do learn that this is all part of Duncan's plan to provoke Stilgar to anger, killing Javid on neutral territory. This yeah. merges Stilgar's honor as the knave of Siege to Burr. It is no right. longer neutral territory if blood <laughs> has been spilled. No kidding. But my guy Duncan, he's ready to go all the way. This is not where he stops, just at ruining Stilgar's honor. He hits Stilgar with the three worst insults that you can say to a Fremen. Yeah. And rumor has it there is a fourth insult that's a yo mama joke so bad that we will not <laughs> repeat it here on the record, folks. Yeah. Here are the three insults that Duncan hits Stilgar with. You wear a collar. You've sold Fremen for their water. You have no immortality. None of your descendants carry your blood. Bang, bang, bang. Hits him with all three of those back to back. And as he turns to leave, Duncan, just to be extra sure about all of this, doubles down on these insults. Quote, If you'd help me with your knife, water thief, please do it in my back. That's the fitting way for one who wears the collar of a demon. End quote. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck! Uh, nothing hits like a Zen Sunni philosopher diss track. You know, for like, real. <laughs> he's like prime computation. This is gonna hurt your feelings the most. <laughs> yeah, my God, my God, and it does. It, it certainly hurts Stilgar's feelings the most because Stilgar, in a blind rage, kills Duncan Motherfucking Idaho. Hmm. We once again have to witness the death of our boy Duncan Idaho. It's true. The moment is. Kind of surreal because as the knife enters his body, Duncan is smiling and then he <laughs> slaps Stilgar in the face. Yeah. And it's so surreal. And ultimately, it ends up being tragic. Like Duncan's final words here in this book <laughs> and in his life are, quote, two deaths for the Atreides, Idaho husked. The second for no better reason than the first. End quote. Wow. Incredible. Now, Stilgar, his blind rage subsides. He is shocked out of this rage and realizes the massive fucking mistake he's just made that yeah. Duncan has forced his hand into killing him. And Stilgar surveys the bloody scene around him, realizes that he has killed the husband of the womb of heaven yeah. and her lover lies dead next to him on neutral ground. Javid. And it's inevitable that Alia will have to respond, right? She right. has to respond in Fremen fashion. Quote, even were Alia to approve privately, she would be forced to respond publicly in revenge. She was, after all, Fremen. End quote. Yeah. As we know, she does sort of approve privately. This is kind <laughs> right. of all going according to plan. But she will outwardly, publicly have to be upset about this and respond against Stilgar. So Stilgar, realizing he is now a fugitive <laughs> in the Empire, tells Harat to gather his wives for the podcast episode and so they can go out on the run, to gather any loyal Fremen, to go grab Ganema and Irulan, if she wants to come too, everyone packed your fucking bags, we're leaving right now, headed out into the desert. Yeah. 
Well, on to chapter 56. We're with Gurney Halleck. <laughs> From two men who can get it, one died, to one man who can still get it, Gurney Halleck. <laughs> now, Gurney has made his way to the smugglers at Tuick's Siege, and he looks out at the damaged Kanat as workers are trying to repair the damage that the desert demon, wonder who that could be, has done to it. <laughs> In a fucking incredible aside, <laughs> we're told that Gurney rolled up to this siege with unprecedented drip. Like yeah, he... so good. This is unbelievable. Quote, The smugglers here had been astonished, no kidding, to learn that he an off-worlder, had captured a worm and ridden it. But Halleck had been equally astonished at their reaction. The thing was simple for an agile man who'd oh seen it God. done many times. Jesus Christ. <laughs> End quote. He's not a young man, folks. No, he's so... He's... God, he's up there in his age, and he's like, oh, the most dangerous animal on the planet, capturing one writing it in a way that most of the galaxy can't even fathom yeah it's not a big deal you're impressed by that wow okay sure so funny <laughs> oh i love it what a legendary character he's fantastic truly now at the moment gurney is basically waiting on the smugglers to come to a decision about his fate they don't really have much reason he sees to keep him alive Generally, the plan would be, you know where we are, we should probably kill you. But they always need fighting men. They always need men of value. And <laughs> fucking guy rolled up on a worm. He's got value, <laughs> clearly. He laments now how times here on Arrakis have changed, right? The smugglers, this group that he once kind of rolled with, he was part of yeah. the smugglers for years. They aren't what they once were. They aren't these kind of like free thinking. They've got a code of honor. They're sort of ne'er-do-wells, but they're also good men. At this point, they are governed by just a base animalistic greed for money. And it's very much not the like working piece of an ecosystem that the smugglers once were. He sees the same pattern with the city Fremen too, right? Where yeah. their mannerisms are even starting to like bleed out into the rural communities, right? Quote, it was sad. Gone was the old give and take of free men. The old ways had been reduced to ritual words, their origins lost to memory, end quote. And as a man who has a history on this planet, it's really hitting home for him, like how kind of tragic this shift is, how visceral it is. Yeah. The chapter ends as a siege attendant named Melodies arrives to tell Gurney that the smugglers have basically decided to allow him to join them. They're like, ah, okay, you can join yeah, us. I mean, they'd be fools not to. The guy fucking <laughs> rolled up on a worm. I know. It seems like a pretty obvious pick, but uh, listen, nothing makes sense these days, as right. Kanima laments later. Do you want LeBron James on your peewee <laughs> soccer team or not? So soccer team? Oh, fuck. I fucked that up. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, no, no. You don't. We're drafting American football. Let's get Steph Curry in there. <laughs> it's gonna be great. <laughs> Who's that on the line? It's the smallest. Like, uh, yeah, that's so funny. 
Listen, LeBron, if you ever hear this, I'd I'd draft you for my soccer team. Yeah, I don't know. I, he's an athlete. I'm sure he's good at soccer also. Yeah, no no shade of LeBron. Totally. Yeah. yeah, he's probably better than me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you tell we both love sports? Okay. <laughs> Whatever. My point has been made. Keep all of that, Jeff. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. Gurney can tell from the attendance tone that this is a temporary sanctuary. This is not a permanent position. This is not some honor-bound contract that'll last forever. He is as likely to be sold out here as anywhere. And he even thinks to himself, yeah, as soon as I can leave, I'm going to steal an ornithopter and leave. Yeah. The final lines of the chapter recall one of my favorite characters, Esmar Tuik, and his legacy as Gurney is kind of reflecting on all of this. Quote, He thought of Esmar Tuik, for whom this siege had been named. Esmar, long dead of someone's treachery, would have slit the throat of this melodies on sight. End quote. Yeah, he would have. Uh, yeah, he would have. Esmar Tuik. Gosh. All righty. Let's move on to chapter 57. Here we join Alia back in the keep as she learns about Javid and Duncan's deaths from our guy, Buer Agarbez. Right. In this moment, we are given another horrifying example of how much the Baron's influence has grown because Alia is literally seeing the world differently. Quote, Alia saw him as though he had been split into two images, one with a serious face and opaque indigo eyes, a worried expression around the mouth. The other image, sensuous and vulnerable, excitingly vulnerable. She especially liked the thickness of his lips. End quote. Uh, Baron, get out of here. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Baron. Now, Boyer is standing here in the keep, giving a full report on what has happened, what has gone down in the not-so-neutral territory of Siege Tabur. And he tells Alia that Stilgar is the one that sent him to deliver the news. Alia then commands Buer to find and kill Stilgar and promises him that once he does, she will name Buer the new Nabe of Siege Tabur. However, she doesn't send him off immediately after Stilgar to go hunt him down. Quote, you are not dismissed. I must consult you privately and at length on your plans to take Stilgar, end quote. Which is just the dumbest innuendo I've ever heard. The Baron has no game. Yeah, it's no subtlety. Yeah. No subtlety whatsoever. Alia turns to an attendant and is like, take this guy, go wash him, go perfume him. He smells like worm. It's gross. I'm about to bang him. It's like there's like right. no subtlety here. It's awful. Which is also not an Alia thing to do. Alia's fucking Fremen. She's oh, she's yeah. a Fremen. He smells like worm. Get out of here, Baron. It's yeah. That's a For sign real. of like maturity. It's a sign of worldliness. It's a sign of capability. And he's like, ugh, perfume him for me. Wild. Again, yeah. these little unspoken details that are very much Baron's influence on Alia and her preferences. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, Fremen guys are spraying themselves crazy with Axe Body Worm Edition. Like, 
that's attractive out in the desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming to the merch store soon. <laughs> Sent a worm. <laughs> so to round out this chapter, Alia then heads back to her private chamber in just a heartbreaking scene, basically has a breakdown. She starts with overwhelming rage and then collapses into uncontrolled grief. And the grief is actually triggered, tragically, when she recognizes one of Duncan's buckles nearby, discarded mm. on the floor. Yeah. And this buckle triggers memories that are just so visceral that Alia's true reaction to hearing about Duncan's death, her love for him, her grief for losing him, are actually able to bubble up through the surface of the Baron at the top. You know, the Baron is just horny, trying to fuck Boer. Right. And that buckle is what kind of breaks the abomination or at least cracks the curtain just enough for the sunlight of Alia's true reaction to bleed through a little bit. The chapter ends on just a gut-wrenching and terrifying final look at how Alia's psyche is clearly just coming apart at the seams. Quote, She felt she had become two people. One looked upon these fleshly contortions with astonishment. The other sought submission to an enormous pain spreading in her chest. The tears flowed freely from her eyes now, and the astonished one within her demanded querulously, Who cries? Who is it that cries? Who is crying now? End quote. Mm. Oh, God damn it, that is so sad. She can't even fully be present with her grief because this other part of her is just like, stop crying, what the fuck? Yeah. It's wild. Or like Ali is so buried now that the love she had for Duncan and the profound sense of loss is this like unexplainable weird sensation that's coming from somewhere. Where is it? Yeah. It's coming yeah. from Alia. And the fact that we're kind of riding along, we keep seeing Alia's name. Alia said this, Alia thought that, but Alia is so gone that it's this weird sensation. It's almost a reversal, right? Where Alia mm -hmm. Atreides mm -hmm. used to have these internal voices that were separate from who she is. Now Alia's feelings are separate from who she is to us and who she is narratively. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost literally unbearable. <laughs> so yeah. fucking so sad. So fucking yeah. sad. How dare you be such a good writer and make that so visceral? That's a quote that really hit me in the feels for sure. Yeah. And frustratingly, I bet they still had sex with Boyer. I uh, know. The worst. It sucks. Well, anyway, that carries us to our final chapter today, chapter 58. And in our final chapter, we've actually been nearly a year. This is a time jump. We're forward. It's like 10, 11 months. It's been a while. And this is after Stilgar's escape into the desert. As we join Ganema and the basically the rest of these Fremen fugitives, you know, hurrah, his wives, the whole podcasting squad <laughs> out in the yeah. desert in this abandoned town that they're kind yeah. of settling in for a few days. Now, shockingly, Stilgar has been basically thriving. He's loving it. <laughs> He's living, laughing, and loving the whole way. He's got some traveling pants or something, traveling jeans. Is that the thing? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, although he carried a price on his head, which once would have bought a planet, Jesus. Stilgar seemed the happiest and most carefree of men. <laughs> End quote. Incredible. He's whistling. 
He's walking around. He's great, doing little dances here and there. He's having a he's having a blast. Ganima, anxious, worried. She's worried about this political turmoil in the Imperium, and she's kind of trying to count what allies do we have out there. And it's a short list. She's struggling a little bit, but despite that struggle, she quote felt remarkably free here. The inner lives no longer plagued her, although she sometimes felt their memories inserted into her consciousness, end quote. So, dang, even Ganima's like, man, it's nice to be on the move again, right? Like, yeah. recall that Fremen for many, many years, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, would move siege to siege, or they would be on the move all the time and then return back to the siege and then go out on the move. And they weren't exactly nomadic, but they definitely were not the kind to be like walled up in a siege during political bargaining and that yeah. is a very new thing and Ganima who's lived thousands of Fremen lives it's one of those I'm sure it feels good in so many ways definitely that was my sense of it as well is both Ganima and Stilgar are shockingly doing better than they have this whole book because they are now living this old Fremen lifestyle of being right. on the move, of allowing the whims of the desert to move you wherever you need to go for survival, for food, for shelter. That's a very right. deeply Fremen lifestyle that we know is no longer present. The culture has been changed so much over the last decades yeah. that the Fremen are no longer living the lives they once did. And that was my read on this situation as well, similar to what right. you're saying, that part of the reason why Stilgar and Ganema feel so weirdly free, even though they're running for their lives basically every day as the forces <laughs> yeah. of Alia chase after them, is because they are getting in touch with those Fremen roots again. Well, from Ganema's thoughts, we learn that the desert demon, aka Leto, wormy boy, Atreides, has been <laughs> very busy the last almost year. Of nine new settlements, eight of them were abandoned, forced to Jeez. abandon ship. <laughs> because he swung through and destroyed all of their like water traps and their canots. Like yeah. he basically rendered them uninhabitable. And now the old sieges are basically bursting at the seams with refugees from these new settlements. We also learn that worms are becoming increasingly scarce everywhere outside the Tanzaruft, and dead ones are cropping up with no signs of like what caused that death. Right. Yeah fascinating and something that i i think i missed the first two times i read this book really interesting now is that something leto's doing is he killing them or is something else happening where ganima doesn't know this is a mystery that the uh, the fremen are dealing with right and ganima's mind wanders as she wonders how things have gotten so out of control and how as i said earlier how few allies they have left mm -hmm. quote nothing made sense anymore <laughs> nothing <laughs> End quote. You know, I identify with that some days. <laughs> yeah, that was me while Leto was covering himself in sand trout. <laughs> yeah. I was like, nothing makes fucking sense anymore or nothing. <laughs> well, as always, superhero, stage left, hurrah, arrives, snaps her out of uh, her kind yeah. of melancholic reverie and mentions offhandedly, oh yeah, we're in this place because Stilgar is waiting to meet Buer Agarvez. Hello. <laughs> yeah. The guy 
fucking a year ago with the lips or something. Ugh, weird. In this abandoned town. Like, this is a meeting place for them. By the way, he's been hunting them. Literally, he has been hunting them yep. for almost this full year. So Ganima is like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> what the fuck? That's right. awful. Right. Why did no one tell me? He's the dude Ollie has been hooking up with for the last year. Are you kidding me? This is a trick. This is a trap. There's nothing good can come from this. What is Stilgar thinking? Stilgar's in the background whistling as he's like working on something. <laughs> so Ganima's frustrated. She's angry that this has been decided without her. And she's basically like, we've got to get out of here. We should not have this meeting. Let's go. Haraz's like, no, Stilgar knows what he's doing. Ganima's like, I'm going to go talk to him. So she storms off yeah. to confront him about this, but he just waves her off like a child, right? Falling into that pattern that happens with preborn so often, seeing her for the 10-year-old she is, right? Yeah. Although it is kind of funny because she responds to this by hiding in an abandoned house and just like curled up in a ball, like pouting, basically, <laughs> which was like a very child response. <laughs> she's like, I'm not a kid. And then she's like in a room like, mm. Yeah, he yeah. hates Stilgar. <laughs> I'm like, it's such a, it is a weirdly childlike response. But yeah, she recalls as she's sort of fuming in this house, words from someone. I wonder mm. who. She mm. can't remember who that person is, but she remembers the words. Quote: If we can immobilize them, things will go as we plan. End quote. Who? Yeah. What a set of chapters, my. God, <laughs> things are moving so quickly here in yeah. the final act of the book. So that rounds out our chapters for today. Let's take another short breather, but stick around, folks, because after the break, we will be diving into Leto versus Paul and breaking mm. down that chapter in depth. You won't want to miss that conversation. So stick around and we will see you in a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your break. Yeah, let's get into the takeaways today. And beginning with a doozy, Leto versus Paul. Yeah. <laughs> the showdown of the century. Mm -hmm. So getting started, as a refresher, recall that the stakes here could not be higher. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we are discussing literally whether or not humanity will be extinguished, as, <laughs> as Leto puts it. Yeah. They're like, option A or option B, we have to decide. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's what's on the table here. That's what's at stake as these mm -hmm. two Kwisatz Hatteracks are basically chatting, working all of this stuff out. Yeah. And from the very start of this conversation, it's clear that Leto has the upper hand. He committed fully in a way that Paul never could or never mm -hmm. did. Quote, Leto possessed two advantages. He had committed himself upon a path from which there was no turning back, and 
he had accepted the terrible consequences to himself. His father still hoped there was a way back and had made no final commitment. End quote. So even now, Paul is like, oh, maybe there's a way out of this. Are you sure you can't go back? Demonstrating this to be true. Demonstrating that he's not ready to commit to the golden path, even though Leto tells us it's really the only choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Recall bold decisions from last episode, right? Hashtag bold (laughs) decisions. Like he just ate a handful of wasabi. He was like, (laughs) this will rule out six possible futures. I'm doing it. Paul's like, I could never do that. It's too much wasabi. It's so much. Definitely rules out the future where your stomach isn't hurting. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it takes for the golden path, all right? (laughs) Tummy aches, part of the golden path, all right? Yeah. Get the cilia in there. (laughs) That'll fix it. So Paul recognizes in this conversation that he's on the back foot, but he is still desperately trying to convince his son that there must be another way. He's like, no, there's got to be. It's the cilia. You're going to do the whole cilia thing? Maybe it's not too late. Quote, Leto looked up to the top of the dune where his father stood, still defiant, but defeated. That was Paul Muadib up there, blind, angry, near despair as a consequence of his flight from the vision which Leto had accepted. End quote. Wow. What a way to describe the former Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Blind, angry, and near despair. It's so true. Yeah. So as we continue into this conversation, we get that brief little interruption from Hassan Tariq, whatever, later took care of it. <laughs> yeah. The conversation then turned towards what happens next, right? Again, right. we're figuring out the future of humanity. Paul asks Leto if he truly truly understands the universe he is creating with the decisions that he's making. And Leto reflects on this, on how he is kind of the one with the control now. He is the captain now. (laughs) Yeah. Quote, he was the sighted man in the universe of the blind. Only he could scatter the orderly rationale because his father no longer held the reins. End quote. Mm. Yeah. That's wild. That's confirmation to us as the reader that this is truly Leto's universe and we are all living in it. Right. Yeah. And it's a realization that's dawning on Paul here as well. He's recognizing that he no longer has control because he can actually no longer even see in his visions how Leto will manipulate those reins, right? All he really sees now is the consequences of Leto's actions what will happen once his son does X, Y, Z. He no longer sees X, Y, Z as an option. It's just like blank, blank, blank will happen, and then your son will do this. Right. So Paul asks Leto if he's ready to accept those consequences, right? You are about to transform over the next thousands of years into something utterly inhuman. You're already well on your way. Are you ready for that? And Leto knows that this question isn't just about the physical. We already know the physical transformations happening. He knows that Paul is also asking about the mental changes that will happen over thousands of years, the changes that will lessen the humanity in him, which, quote, 
would inflict themselves upon the worshippers. End quote. Basically, what effects would a crazy god slash cilia being who lives thousands of years like what yeah, effect yeah. will that have on humanity beyond just the physical? That's what Paul is asking. Are you ready to take on that responsibility of shaping humanity in such a dramatic way? Leto, for what it's worth, doesn't answer this question directly and instead does a bit of a pivot and brings up the false final words of Muad'Dib that were repeated by oh, a priest. I love this so I much. I love this so much. Quote, Now I do what all life must do in the service of life, Leto said. You never said that, but a priest who thought you could never return and call him a liar put those words into your mouth. End quote. I love Paul's response to that, where he's like, they're not bad last words. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, listen, uh, I'm not complaining. That's pretty yeah, sweet. Right. I'll take it. <laughs> I actually said, you know, damn, my balls itch. Uh, those were not <laughs> eloquent, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating. And what's fun is we talked about this back in Messiah, right? Like in our final Dune Messiah book club episode, we talked about how a guy named Tandis reported that Paul's final words were, quote, now I am free. Yeah. End quote. And we discussed in that book club episode how eh, maybe not his final words, right? Like maybe Tandis is just making shit up because Muad'Dib is so legendary, right? He's a god at this point. Of course, his final words are going to rumor and myth not going to be what he actually said and right. will yeah. be what people put in his mouth. Here in Children of Dune, we get confirmation that's exactly what happened when Paul walked out into the desert. His final words were put in his mouth because right. he is legend beyond just being a human. It also struck me that... Leto not answering his father's question here is quite telling, right? His dad is like, dude, you're going to change physically and mentally. You will no longer be human, and that's going to have a profound effect on humanity. Are you ready for that? Leto doesn't say, like, yes or no. He doesn't say, yes, I'm ready for that, dad. To me, that's telling because he right. has made this ultimate sacrifice. It's a very personal sacrifice of his own humanity in order to save all of humanity. Right. And basically, no one outside of Paul and Kanima will ever know the truth of that, or at least sure. never know the extent of that, of his sacrifice. Right. And in fact, later in this very conversation, in this chapter, Leto acknowledges that he will come to be hated. Quote, for a time, they'll call me the missionary of Shaitan, too, Leto said. End quote. Yeah. Shaitan being the devil. Right. That is so interesting to me and speaks to some of the humanity that is still left in Leto here. I sense that he's scared. He's walking towards his path because he knows he has to. It's his responsibility. But that doesn't mean it has to be an easy thing. And it doesn't mean that he can't be scared of what's to come. And him maybe dodging the question speaks to that fear. Yeah. I also think about, recall when Leto is first discovering the full breadth of the power that he possesses, he mentions not even Ganema can know about the true extent of his powers, right? Mm, He's mm -hmm. like, I can't even tell her about this. Yeah. And I think about that 
affecting this as well because you're right it's this insane sacrifice that he's making but it's a sacrifice in spite of power that he can't tell anybody about no one in the yeah. universe yeah so like it is tragic in a way that only paul and geneva can understand but even they will fail to see the breadth of what crazy power he has and can't utilize to make another choice right so there's that side of it too totally totally great point well at this point paul has basically accepted that leto's committed he's like "Ah, all right (laughs) you are covered in worms like that's fine right and there's nothing i can say that will change your mind even so he's still got some fight left in him quote paul's voice was old then and filled with hidden protests. There was a reserve of defiance in him, though. He said, I'll take the vision away from you if I can. End quote. Wow, hell yeah. That's so punk hell rock, yeah. Paul Atreides. <laughs> hell yeah. Also, kind of sweet. He's like, look at this terrible vision you've decided. You've committed. There's all this terrible stuff that's going to happen. I'll take it from you if I can. Right? Like, you know, you could read that. Not only in, like, I'm going to stop you, but also I'm going to protect you from these terrible things you're deciding to do, basically. Yeah. There's kind of a weird, prescient father moment. (laughs) (laughs) But Leto reveals that he will enforce thousands of years of peace under his rule. Quote, and those forms of violence which I permit. It'll be a lesson which humankind will never forget. End quote. Yikes. We have spent (laughs) like 1,700 pages talking about how dangerous stagnation is. Yep. And Leto's like, here's the plan. Stagnation. Stagnation, baby. (laughs) And Paul's like, fuck, that sucks. That's awful. (laughs) And this is the behavior of a tyrant. As we know, as Paul knows, the ultimate rule of a tyrant subjugates the people and leads to this stagnation and dormancy and stagnation is death yes <laughs> these are patterns and connections that we've been right drilling home since literally the first pages of the first book but leto intends to act as the ultimate example to teach humanity once and for all to fear tyrants and embrace uncertainty this is similar to paul realizing the guild navigators right? We're choosing this safe way out. No, you have to be bold. You have to reject stagnation. Well, clearly you can't lead by example. (laughs) So Leto's like, nope, this is how we're going to do it. It's going to be bad. Everyone's going to hate it. It's what we're going to do. That's wild. I mean, it's truly taking the idea that you have to get burnt before you fear fire to the extreme. Right. Leto's (laughs) like, I'm about to motherfucking burn all of humanity. So everyone is afraid of the fire of tyrants at a time (laughs) (laughs) it's wild and as we said earlier in our summary paul saw a lot of this in his own visions as well of the future and he saw a version of himself in this role too as the ultimate tyrant as the ultimate lesson for humanity but it's one that he rejected it's obviously one that he tried to find alternates to he didn't want to embrace this role leto has embraced it And that's what sets them apart. And this lesson is not an easy one to be clear, right? Like he's not about to like, it's not a slap on the wrist for humanity and everyone (laughs) will walk away having learned their lesson. 
Leto makes it very clear what he's about to do. Oh, my God. Yeah, this quote. <laughs> quote, your jihad will be a summer picnic on Kaladin by comparison. End quote. 61 billion <laughs> dead. Leto's like, summer picnic. Great. Jesus. Wasn't that a time? <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's wild. Yeah. That's wow. wild. And it's interesting <laughs> that Leto calls it his peace, right? He's like, I'm going to enforce thousands of years of my peace and only yeah. allow the forms of violence that I permit. Obviously, to enforce a tyrannical peace <laughs> involves a lot of bloodshed, right? It's almost sure. an oxymoron yeah. in that way. But to enforce that level of peace and to subjugate people to that level, yeah, that certainly requires something that's way more extreme than even Paul's jihad, for sure. Right. And Leto's about to do that. Right. It's true. Now, obviously, speaking of Paul's jihad, we saw and we talked a lot about how in Dune Messiah, Paul is struggling with what he has done, what he has been forced to do. He is just racked with this guilt about what his jihad and his rule and his godhood have unleashed upon the galaxy. And later on in this conversation, Paul even admits that he, quote, could never do an evil act which was known before the act, end quote, mm. <laughs> which I love on so many levels because yeah. we spent a long time in both the Dune and Messiah book clubs talking about the duality of Paul, right? right. He, there's the Atreides side of him raised by Duke Leto raised by Thufir and Duncan. And then there's the Fremen side of him, raised by Stilgar and life in the desert. Here, he's basically outright telling us in this quote that his Atreides morality held him back from committing to something as horrific as the Golden Path. Right. And what would have been his own tyrannical role within it, right? His yeah. Atreides half would not allow him to do that. And... The reason I bring all of this up, really, the like big takeaway ultimately is that here is advantage number two that Leto has over his father. Leto is completely Fremen. Right, right. This is what he says. Quote, it is sad that you were never really Fremen, Leto said. We Fremen know how to commission the Arifa. Our judges can choose between evils. It's always been that way for us. End quote. Oh, the use of us. The Fremen as a people. Yeah. The Fremen culturally have always had to make hard decisions. Yeah. The survival of the tribe has always come first, right? Here, Leto is choosing the survival of the tribe. In this case, his tribe is all of humanity. Right. It's amazing. But also, he's excluding Paul from Fremenhood with that us, right? Like, yeah. It's such an interesting point. No matter how much Muad'Dib was kind of claimed by the Fremen, Paul was always an outsider and even still is as the mm -hmm. creature, this mm -hmm. kind of tool being used by the people at Jakarudu. Yeah, that's such a good point. I love it. The layers to this conversation, so good. <laughs> well, getting back to the conversation, uh, <laughs> Leto repeats his request that Paul return to Shulok with him, but Paul refuses. This leads us to this moment where Leto offers to return the Atreides-Hawk kind of signet ring, right? 
And we get probably one of the saddest moments in this entire book. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, buckle up, but with your sad, sad buckles this time. Quote, if I'd only died, Paul whispered. I truly wanted to die when I went into the desert that night, but I knew I could not leave this world. End quote. Oh, my God. The fact that he whispered it just makes it yeah. so much worse. If he yelled this, not as bad. <laughs> Whispering, it just sounds so defeated. And so mm -hmm. it's tragic. Yeah. And we learn in this exchange that the Fremen of Jakarudu found Paul, as he knew they would, basically. Right, right. After the events of Messiah and wanted his visions. So although he refused for a time, he was like, I'm not going to give you visions. They plied him with it seems like food and drink and like women yeah <laughs> which i don't know i don't know how much that's just leto being mean uh and how much that's <laughs> factual but he does apparently have visions every once in a while right as we know which is confirmation of a thing we talked about a few book club episodes ago that paul is not as blind as he pretends to be you know like right, he is still right peeking in and out of the vision curtain a little bit every now and then. Even in the start of this very conversation with his son, he's like, I'm blind. What are you talking about? I don't give a fuck. And Leto's like, mm, I know you're yeah. still looking at visions every now and then. Like, yeah, we don't need to pretend here. <laughs> also, the way he like scampered up the sand and he like came to stand in front of him and Leto's like, oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, right. He's quote unquote blind, but he jumps self-assuredly off of this worm lands in the sand and then climbs a sand dune without hesitating yeah sure all right you're you play a bad blind man paul all right 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 <laughs> still so sad though i mean yeah, he really he is. wanted the series to end at messiah you know and the publisher was like <laughs> no you gotta write more and here he is finding himself basically being used by the fremen at jakarutu like you said He's a yeah. tool for them. And I'm sure there's a bit of using back and forth happening, right? He's using them. Right. They're using him. Kind of a mutually beneficial and hateful relationship, I'm sure. Right. Now, after this moment, Leto once again offers the hawk ring. He's like, you sure you don't want the ring, though, Dad? Like, <laughs> he offers it up again. And this is just so brilliant because for me, this is where another puzzle piece of this conversation, another layer of subtext unlocked. Because here's where we understand that all throughout this conversation, Leto has been testing his father's visions. He has been poking and prodding to see how much his father knows and how far his father's visions go while also simultaneously nudging his dad toward the right actions, toward the actions of his golden path. Right. And we come to learn that the actions that Leto basically wants here, the three outcomes that'll be best, are if Paul takes the ring, which is why he kind of keeps pushing the ring, if Paul stabs himself, which even Paul knows this, leaves Paul's body for Leto to use as a symbol, cements right. the golden path that's honestly yeah. like the fastest option here right or option number three something else that leto continues to repeat throughout this conversation is for paul to return to shulak with leto right 
Those are the three outcomes he wants. And we realize at this moment with this whole ring exchange, Leto's been pushing this this whole conversation. <laughs> yeah. He yeah, has yeah, been yeah. manipulating this whole conversation in this way. It's brilliant. Paul, yeah. of course, knows some of this manipulation himself and is trying to resist it, no matter how futile it may be. We get this great quote. Quote, Paul knew he could not win, but he hoped yet to nullify that single vision to which Leto clung. End quote. So again, that little flame of defiance still in him. Yeah. As much as Leto is poking and prodding Paul's visions, Paul is doing the same to Leto as well. Where can I find the edges? Where can I get an edge on my son to stop this from happening? One thing he does try here is he straight up asks. He says, Leto, are you a good Fremen? And like a good Fremen, will you allow a blind man to find peace? Let me walk out into the desert and die like I wanted to back in Messiah. Right. Leto immediately is just like, no, <laughs> no. that's not going to nope. happen. Like no, no debate, no nothing. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, that is a path that won't support the golden path, right? That is an option right. and an outcome Leto does not want happening here. And he simply will not allow his father to do that. And that's right. Paul once again testing the edges. What if I get him to let me do that? That might stop the golden path. And Leto's like, yeah, that would stop the golden path. Not going to happen, bud. So the conversation continues and Paul basically agrees to be taken to his old friend Gurney Halleck. It's a moment where Leto even realizes the limits of Paul's vision because Paul thinks Gurney is still working for the sisterhood and hasn't yet realized that Gurney is no longer working for Jessica or for the sisterhood. Right, right. And <laughs> this is so sad, so beautiful. I got quite emotional at this moment. Paul tries one last ditch effort here. He asks Leto if he can touch him. And this is kind of the moment where I personally teared up a little because I was like, has Paul ever hugged Leto? Right. Like right. his whole life? Is this maybe the first moment father and son are this close to each other and can embrace even? As touching of a thought as that is, this seemingly tender moment has some <laughs> has some tension as well. Right. Because Paul is a very sneaky, sneaky little hobbit and <laughs> – is basically looking, again, for a way to break the golden path. Quote, Not even a poisoned knife will harm me now, Leto said. I'm already a different chemistry. Tears slipped from his sightless eyes, and Paul released his grip, dropped his hand to his side. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> as much as Paul was trying to embrace his son and touch him, he was also looking for a weakness in the membrane where right. a knife could perhaps go stabby-stab and put an end to the golden path. Wild stuff. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't get that from the reading, but I absolutely see what you're saying. And I'm like, oh, shit, I missed that. <laughs> it's so subtle. Neither of them is obviously saying any of this out loud. Right, right. But it yeah. was pretty clear to me that Paul, on one level, yes, is trying to just touch his son and embrace him as a father. Yeah. But on another level, is like, it would also be convenient if I could find a hole in the armor. I also, I just saw it as like, as we know, Paul can't see Leto. He has no vision of Leto because Leto's invisible as a prescient being. So Paul knows the metamorphosis that Leto's going to go through, but has no like idea of what it looks like, basically, yeah. or like what the reality of it is. Yeah, So true. I also saw this as like, you're probably right, right? He's probably looking for it like, okay, is this an option for me? 
if it'll do X, Y, and Z, like maybe I can do this. But certainly I also saw this as like a tender moment of curiosity and like, I've never seen what you look like in this moment. Can I fucking feel the worm, <laughs> the worm suit? Yeah. And also, yeah. oh, and your, your face is still your own. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Like I wasn't sure how that was going to work out. Right. But yeah. And then Leto's sort of saying, isn't this fucking crazy? Like poison will not work on me. And that was already kind of true from the Bene Gesserit, like metabolic control. But yeah, poison knives, still a risk for most people. Not for Leto. Not anymore. Yeah. I, I just don't think he'd even bring that up if he didn't know Paul was thinking it. Right. Oh, sure. Like, yeah. like why bring up a knife unless you're responding to something, you know, your dad is thinking in this moment and just getting That's ahead true. of it. Right. You're getting ahead of the PR crisis by being like, no, nope, <laughs> don't even think about it, dad. Yeah. Knife's not going to do shit. Yeah. So like, he, I, I just don't think he would have brought it up if it was just a tender moment. I think it's definitely both. It's an emotional yeah. tender moment, but it's also Paul once again, testing the edges of the vision and trying to break the golden path. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And ultimately, the conversation kind of starts to wrap up with this other heart-wrenching moment as <laughs> they discuss Alia and her abomination. Quote, Paul buried his face in his hands. His shoulders shook for a moment. He lowered his hands, and his mouth was set in a harsh line. There's a curse upon our house. Oh, I prayed God. that you would throw that ring into the sand, that you'd deny me and run away to make another life. It was there for you. End quote. Wow. And Leto is like, okay, sure, but, quote, at what price? End quote. Oh, that's so good. Cold, chilling. Yeah. And you're right, there's this curse upon our house. Again, looking at Paul's trauma around what everything he tried there's banners across the universe carrying my father's name and and what is house Atreides what is it and now it's this curse it's this cursed group of people this bloodline this cursed bloodline but the implication here is that if Leto had ignored his responsibility and chosen a quote-unquote normal life right maybe with Sabiha she makes good coffee after all. <laughs> yeah <laughs> He'd be effectively condemning humanity to extinction, right? Yeah, yeah. We also see echoes of Leto Atreides, the first, you know, thinking about maybe I'll just flee. Maybe I'll take my concubine, Jessica, and my son, Paul, and my closest people, and we'll flee. We'll flee this Imperium. We'll just go to some far-off place. And knowing that he can't do that, like knowing that that's not an option, you have to kind of play the game so to speak. Now, obviously, he was just kind of seeing this as a political truth, but here, Leto is identifying the prescient cost of that sort of action. Paul's like, you could get out of here. Have a life. <laughs> Leto's like, no, that's not. That's really not an option, and we both know why. Yeah, yeah. And this reveals to us Leto's third advantage over Paul. Paul was already in love with Chani when his visions showed him humanity's future, right? Mm -hmm. He already had that deep attachment that Leto hasn't experienced. And he's experienced like moments of future visions of Sabiha, but nothing tangible, nothing real. Not those like tender moments where he's stalking the city in disguise and then comes back and his like legs hurt <laughs> and 
you know, Chani's there to rub his legs, you know, whatever. Nothing tangible. And we get this quote from Paul that kind of drives this home. Quote, Just once I failed to fight for my principles. Just once. I accepted the modinate. I did it for Chani, but it made me a bad leader. End quote. Jesus. I know. It's the classic sort of worth of one life versus the worth of all life conundrum and something that no one should ever have to choose. Like no one should bear that responsibility of choosing like their life or the life of all of humanity. But that was the position Paul was in and he kind of let everyone down in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And Leto doesn't have a Chani. He has to be here a little bit, but he doesn't have a Chani, not like Paul did. And he also has Paul's failure as part of his internal memories and his mm-hmm. internal lives. So he has that lesson learned. But despite all of his kind of protestations, Leto's choice is a necessary part of Paul's actions. And there's a real tragedy baked into that as well, that he's arguing with his own decisions in the past, basically. Yeah. And in the end, Paul accepts his defeat, right? Right, the, right. Battle concludes the epic showdown of the century. Father versus son. Wormy lad versus old blind man. <laughs> Two gods, one dune. <laughs> when you put wormy lad and old blind man, it, it sounds less like the showdown of the century. <laughs> it's robot chicken. It's, it's really the, the tone. But the myth of Muad'Dib comes to an end. Quote, But Paul could only shake his head, knowing he would have no comfort from this night or any other. Muad'Dib, the hero, must be destroyed. He'd said it himself. Only the preacher could go on now. End quote. Oh, my God. That's it, folks. This right here, as far as I'm concerned, is where Paul Atreides dies, right? Yeah. Like, he is fully letting go of who he was and what he represented to this universe. And he is now simply the preacher. He is no longer the hero. He is no longer Muad'Dib. And in many ways, he is no longer Paul Atreides, you know, the head of House Atreides. He is just this old man of the desert. I think another way to phrase it, or the way that I think about it, is this is the moment that Paul Atreides, as an agent acting upon the universe, ceases. Like, he was clinging to these kind of burning embers of the flame of the Kwisatz Haderach as he continued to sort of adjust and push and pull in his own way, giving his speeches at the palace and doing his part, right, to kind of move the pieces of the galactic chessboard. But this is the point at which he's like, okay, I've given into your vision. This is Leto's universe, right? As you said, we're right. all just living in it. He is now fully living in Leto's universe, no longer the young Atreidean duke who attempted to move the future and move the yeah. universe. Totally. No longer playing that game of chess. He has forfeited. Right. Beautiful. God, I love that chapter. Wow. So much <laughs> yeah. there. God damn it, that was so tense. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. And then that little, like, Asan Tariq, <laughs> like, excerpt. And, oh, God. Oh, it's so funny. It's, Frank does a lot with like the juggling of tempos in his books where you'll have like nothing, nothing, nothing all in their heads. Like we spent six pages with Leto looking at 
Jakarudu going, right, is that Jakarudu? Right. For like six pages. <laughs> and then fucking they have this talk and it is a drawn out conversation. It's not a short chapter, but there's so much to every sentence and mm-hmm. so much is being revealed to us. And it's this electric moment that we've been wanting for so long. It's so cool. And also, I just can't stop thinking about Javid walking in like, hey, guys, what are you talking about? And then just getting stabbed. And fucking Duncan's ice cold. That was to quell the rumors or whatever. Like, yeah, fuck, oh, God. it's so wild the way Frank juggles these different tempos. But yeah, it also yeah. makes it a, a very fun read because you never know. You don't know if you're going to turn the page and it's going to be like, Leto's in the desert. Cool. Is he alone for the whole chapter, or does he meet Paul fucking Mwadid Petrani's? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, incredible. So good. Well, since that was an absolutely gargantuan takeaway, yeah. our second takeaway is going to be fairly small. And, in fact, we're going to try and move through it a little quicker, lightning round style. Right. Because right. what we basically wanted to do was... As we prepare for the final episode of this Children of Dune book club, the next right. one, we wanted to acknowledge the time jump that happened in yeah. today's chapters. Like, it's almost yeah. so flyby and so quick that it's easy to miss. Right. And so we wanted to very quickly just check in with all of our characters, all at least all of our main players, right. and figure out where they've been and where they are now for the last 10 to 11 months because there has been a time jump and there have been a few. There's a three-month time jump in the last episode. So we're like a year or so out further into this story and we wanted to check in with everyone before we head into the final book club episode. So let's do it. Let's see what everyone has been up to for the last year. So let's start with Leto, Leto 2. I know we were just talking about him and Paul, but this chapter with Ganema that we finished on is like 11 months later. So what has he been up to? Well, <laughs> he's out in the deserts having a fucking party, <laughs> breaking canots here and there under the guise of this desert demon, stoking these superstitious fears and flames. And a big part of this is it is not only reverting many Fremen to these kind of more traditional superstitious ways. Recall his quote with Ganema, if we can was it paralyze them if we can immobilize them our plan will proceed something along those lines mm-hmm. he's scaring them into immobility and he's setting back this ecological transformation of the planet by something like he said by generations in order to buy more time for his golden path for whatever he needs to do after this conversation with his father he does still have this outstanding overarching scheme and plan that he devised with Ganema. Recall that, like, no matter how fucking crazy it gets, we were being told about all of this in, like, chapter six. (laughs) Chapter 10. He was like, I'm going to have fucking different skin and be very strong. And Ganema's like, cool, cool. That's part of the plan, right? What is the rest of that plan? We don't know. The full scale of their schemes and their plans within plans, still a mystery. Ganema's still repressing whatever they talked about. She still believes he's dead. All of that is the case. And although we spent that last chapter that we were talking about with Leto and Paul, Paul is probably 
not with Leto. He is almost certainly with Gurney motherfucking Halleck. <laughs> right. He is almost certainly, based on their conversation, he doesn't object to being taken to Gurney. It's almost certainly the case that he is with Gurney Halleck somewhere. And Gurney, as Ganema reflects, is, quote, nowhere to be found, although he was reported seen everywhere. <laughs> Amazing. End quote. Phenomenal. <laughs> He's out here making trips. Right. Clearly still riding around on worms. worms. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking insane. It's not a big deal. Why are you impressed? Why are right. you all clapping? I just did it because I'd seen it done. What are you doing? Yeah. yeah. I'm just doing donuts in my Maserati. You guys don't? <laughs> He's fuck? doing donuts on worms. It's crazy. <laughs> He's Tokyo drifting sandworms. It's yeah. a simple thing for an agile man who'd seen it done. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that's Leto. Paul and Gurney taken care of. That's right. Let's check in with Ganema very quick. We had that final chapter with her today. Where is she at these days? Well, from the chapter, we know that she is with Stilgar and with Irulan and approximately 60 other Fremen fugitives out in this abandoned settlement <laughs> in the Tansa Rift. Oh, only 47 of which are Stilgar's wives. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, Huge we don't know guest list for the podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also learned from this chapter that her headspace is in a pretty similar place that it was 10 to 11 months ago. She right. is still hell-bent on killing Farodin, <laughs> nice. who she believes is responsible for the death of her brother. She's feeling surprisingly good now that she's reconnecting to her Fremen roots, as we discussed earlier, out here right. on the run. And her inner lives are bothering her less and less, which is awesome. We know That's that... Part of the hypnosis that made her forget her brother's death also played a role in helping her suppress the inner lives. And it seems like that is still working pretty well for her, in addition to kind of returning to this Fremen lifestyle of moving from place to place. She's less bothered by yeah. her other memories, which is great. Yeah, she's also kind of committed to this plan of pretending to marry Faradin to trick him to come planet side so she can kill him. Yeah. Speaking of which... Let's uh, talk about Jessica and Farodin. <laughs> yeah. We are told that reports place them still on Seleucus Secundus. So we watched Farodin last time we were with him graduate to status of Bene Gesserit. He is no mm -hmm. longer Carino. Mm -hmm. He is now Bene Gesserit. So we have to imagine in this time, in this nearly year, Jessica and Farodin have their own sort of plans within plans cooking. They never don't. Nobody doesn't have plans within plans. So they've got something going on. We don't know what. Could be whatever Jessica was working on, just now including him as a co-conspirator. We don't know. We'll see. Faradin has apparently accepted the marriage proposal to Ganima Atreides as part of this thing, uh, but a date clearly hasn't been set yet. <laughs> I can't tell if he knows she plans on murdering him. I have no clue, but I know that if a save the date for that <laughs> wedding shows up, I am 100% going to be there because... It's either going to be a beautiful, lovely day of celebrating love and lifelong commitment, or it's going to be a fucking murder. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, and you don't want to miss it. <laughs> what a wedding. I've been to a lot of weddings this year. I'm sure none of them compare to the wedding of Farad and Karina and Kenema Atreides. <laughs> no kidding. We'll have to see. <laughs> All right. Next character we got to check in with is Alia. Yeah. We know that Alia is still posted up on that Regency throne. Right. And she is 
very likely at this point enacting Baron Harkonnen's wishes. That abomination continues to take her over. And that probably involves sleeping with a lot of boys, like our guy Buer Agarvis, and doing everything she can to ruin the name of House Atreides. Right. The Baron's two biggest goals in life. (laughs) Right. Her aide, Buer Agarvis, who is almost certainly in this last year become one of her lovers, is on his way to meet Stilgar, as Harad tells us. And we also learn that it has been months of him unsuccessfully hunting Stilgar because he keeps getting called back to the city to attend to his duties there, which to me is a very obvious indication that Alia and Buer are fucking. She's basically calling him back for booty calls all the time, and he can't, like, go do his job in the desert. (laughs) Middle of the desert, he gets a text you up. He's like, fuck, (laughs) yes! God damn, okay, fine, Jesus. When the Empress of the Known Universe is like, you up, you don't, you're fucking up, bro, right? Like, even if you're not up. (laughs) You don't leave her on read. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Finally, it's worth noting about Alia, she is absolutely alone at this point, right? We're, we're joking about uh, she's sleeping with these guys. Da, da, da. None of this is like actual true comfort to Alia Atreides. She is alone. She has lost Duncan. She has lost Tilgar. She has lost control of herself to the Baron. Yeah, yeah. And it's just worth acknowledging how tragic all of this is, that the Baron has effectively isolated her from anyone who would even remotely be willing to help her and has used that as a way to complete his taking of the reins away from her. Yeah. She's utterly alone. And that's truly sad. It is. Alia, one of the most tragic characters in the story, as we've said time and time again. In any book ever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, finally, we'll wrap this up. Again, we promised it would be quick with an honorable mention (laughs) Duncan, Idaho. Where's he at these days? (laughs) Oh, no. He's been rendered for water is the fact of it. The death still has claimed his moisture. Duncan, Idaho. Mentat. Gola. Zensuni philosopher. Is dead. Yeah. Again. (laughs) Oh. Guy can't get a break. But he did go out on his own terms. He catalyzed a huge shift in the balance of power, right? He removed... From Alia's grasp, Ganema and Irulan and Stilgar's complacency, he shifted that balance of power dramatically, putting a real wrench in the cog of whatever power is now controlling his wife. Yeah. So, as always, rest in peace, Duncan. You earned this final rest. He did indeed. What a guy. What a guy. And those are our takeaways. Those are our big takeaways from today's episode reading, from today's assigned reading. We're going to take another final quick break, but stick around as soon as we're back. We're going to jump into our spice morsels. I can, I can almost, oh, I can, mm, I can smell them. They're Mm. ready to eat. It's going to be so good. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Let's wrap up today's episode with some spice morsels. Now, Leo, to kick off our spice morsels section for today, I'm actually going to hand off the baton to you because you went down (laughs) such a rabbit hole for this first one Uh that you deserve 
to take us through this journey. I could not do it justice. This is oh, this punishment. You're punishing me. Okay, I get it. That's <laughs> fine. I'm glad you read that subtext. Great. <laughs> it's always meaning within meaning. Okay, yes. Our first spice morsel is a doozy. This is a big boy. Paul, Abu Dur, the father of the indefinite roads of time. <laughs> What's that mean? Well, in today's reading, we get this exchange between Leto II and Paul Atreides, a.k.a. the preacher. Quote, if that's your vision, I will not share it the preacher said. Perhaps you have no choice, Leto said. You are the fit Hakika, the reality. You are the Abu Dur, father of the indefinite roads of time, end quote. And naturally, I wanted to dig in. <laughs> I was like, all right, yeah, let's go. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Fast forward to having like nine Wikipedia tabs open as I struggled to wrap my head around a very real, very, what seems beautiful and profound idea, part of Sufism, <laughs> the religious body of beliefs. So I will walk you through what I sort of uncovered during my research, but I will start this with a disclaimer. This may only scratch the surface of the full meaning of all of this. And I wanted to say that I was raised Buddhist. I was not raised as part of any kind of Sufist belief system. So I want to encourage anybody out there with additional insight into what we're talking about here, or if I make a mistake or a mistake in interpretation, by all means, gmail.com. let us know. Our final, final episode will be a mailbag type thing. Happily, we'll include any insight you have to add to this conversation. But as I was doing some research about these terms as they pertain to Sufism, quite a bit started clicking into place in a way that I thought would be interesting to readers of Dune and fans of Frank's universe. So, beginning. Breaking the statement into halves, when Leto says, quote, you are the feet Hakika, the reality, what is he saying? Well, Hakika, which is spelled almost the same, doesn't have the U, is one of the four stages of Sufism, which is a body of spiritual and religious practice within Sunni and Shia Islam basically. I did some very basic research and within that saw a description of Hakika as a sort of universal, profound, and undeniable truth, right? Like the true reality of the world. And to quote Wikipedia, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> How dare I, you? I know. I'm sorry. It's, a, it's such a high school move. To quote <laughs> Wikipedia, all of my sources are Wikipedia. Quote, a sheikh that has advanced through Tarika has Hakika and can see into the lives of his disciples in a spiritual sense. He has knowledge of pregnancies and sicknesses before his disciples tell him. He can see beyond the physical world because of his proximity to God and possession of Hakika. Hakika is less a stage in itself and more the marker of a higher level of consciousness which precedes the next and final stage, Marifa. End quote. So already you can start to see some of these concepts lining up with Paul's abilities as the Kwisatz Haderach, right? His ability, this advanced higher level of consciousness, this ability to see things that are not normally visible for a person. And it does seem like a pretty literal borrowing of this concept by Frank Herbert as he wrote yeah. this story. Leto says Paul is, quote, the reality, 
which is an apt simplification of that above description, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the second portion of Leto's message, quote, you are Abu Dur, father of the indefinite roads of time, end quote, seems mostly rooted in Dune-specific lore. Like, as I looked up Abu Dur, I saw that there is a location in the real world that may have the same name, but doesn't seem to be significant in this way. And then father of the indefinite roads of time, similarly, seems to be a reference to, like, Orange Catholic Bible and Zen Sunni beliefs, not something from the real world. I could be missing something, but that's what I found. To break that down, by calling Paul the father of indefinite roads of time, I believe Leto is at once afflicting Paul with the responsibility of authoring these strings of fate that he's now having to like sort through as he finds the golden path because Paul was the first Kwisatz Haderach, right? He was the one who authored this future vision that he created by, by looking at it. And he's referencing Paul as his own father, right? Leto too is born out of Paul's precedent, out of Paul's literal loins, but also out of the mistakes that Paul made are forcing Leto into these things. And keep in mind, all of this is in response to Paul saying, no, I don't want to be a part of your vision. Leto is cementing him within that vision by giving him this title. Yeah. Now, as I wrap up, clearly Frank dipped his toes into Sufism as he built out some of these conversations. And I wanted to share one more little fun tidbit because Hakika is described as the third stage leading to the final and fourth stage, the Marifat, I think is how it is said. And Marifat is described as, quote, knowledge acquired through experience. It is a term used by Sufi Muslims to describe knowledge of spiritual truth, Hakika, having lived through experiences, end quote. And I don't know about y'all, but that sounds a lot like Leto II's journey through this book, bringing life and personal experience to his almost infinite inner lives and this Kwisatz Haderach awareness that is blossoming. How do you then bring that to life and truth? And if Paul is Hakika, Leto II then becomes the final stage of this Kwisatz Haderach identity as mm -hmm. Marifat as the son of the father, which I just thought was all very cool and very yeah. interesting. Again, if you know more about Sufism, if you are a practitioner yourself or you've studied it, please hit us up. Let us know. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. And maybe we'll talk about it because I think Frank probably did his research, but his research would have been done in the 80s at like a library. And I'd love to hear people's thoughts about this in 2022. Yeah, for sure. Please send those thoughts our way. Another rabbit hole. <laughs> Great job on that research. Even though it was all sourced from Wikipedia, Listen. it all sounded great. Well done, Leo. I did try to find the sources that Wikipedia was referencing, but they were all books that I have to buy, order, and read, and I didn't have time. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I'm willing. Some of time. <laughs> we appreciate it nonetheless. All right. Let's talk about our final morsel today, types of shields in the Dune universe. Hmm. So in today's reading, Asan Tariq hilariously tries to kill two Kwisatz Haderachs using a pseudo shield out in the <laughs> desert. Right. And of course, the minute we came across this term, we were like, that's a fucking morsel right there. <laughs> yeah. And thus, 
we started looking into other types of shields within the Dune universe, some of which we have already come across as well in the previous right. books. It's true. As always, the Dune Encyclopedia fucking hits a home run with this, gives us some fun additional details about the types of shields that exist within the Dune universe. So let's go over some of them. Sure. First up, we have the pseudo shield, the one that we see in today's reading. The Dune Encyclopedia basically reiterates exactly what is explained in the book itself from today's chapters. Pseudo shields are designed for use on Arrakis specifically, and they produce a field that is purely meant to attract and, most importantly, enrage a worm into a frenzy, forcing the worm to basically attack and destroy everything in the area. It's not actually a shield. Like, it doesn't actually protect anything. It just right. sends out the right. same sort of field that a regular shield would. Right. Next up, we have the semi-shield, something that we actually saw all the way back in the first book on Fade Ratha's birthday in the Colosseum. Yeah. yeah. Now, the semi-shield is a personal shield that only protects one side of the body. And they were primarily used in gladiatorial contests, like the one on Fade's birthday. Right. The devices themselves, despite <laughs> covering less area, were confoundingly larger than your standard <laughs> belt-mounted personal shield. And they also ended up being heavier. <laughs> so, like, really a clunky piece of gear. All around worse. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, really, just worse in practically every way. Like, imagine if the iPhone got... Smaller, the battery got worse, the touchscreen didn't work anymore, and the buttons were hard to click. And it's 13 pounds. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's going on with these semi-shields. But again, they were primarily used in these gladiatorial contests. And while the champions, the gladiator champions, were given full-on proper shields, the slaves that they'd be fighting would often be given these clunky, heavy, hard-to-use semi-shields right. in addition to being drugged. So, yeah, clearly there's some ethical issues here on the fairness of these gladiatorial <laughs> contests. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, we're told that it's actually more complicated to make the shield bad in this way. Like the semi-shield <laughs> yeah. is actually harder to build and more expensive to construct. And thus they were, quote, fairly rare, end quote. Right, right. <laughs> So that's just proof that just because something is more expensive, it doesn't mean it's better. Lesson right. learned. Totally. Not going to buy the iPhone 15. Lesson learned. <laughs> what about like the Supreme brand semi-shield though? <laughs> <laughs> Very rare. <laughs> Very right. expensive. Right. The white t-shirt with Kanye's name on it, shield, that one. Yeah. Overpriced. <laughs> the, not worth it. The Yeezys shield. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The next shield on our list is the Pento shield, Ooh. something which also- <laughs> dates all the way back to the first Dune book. That I forgot about. I, did, I was like, what the fuck's a pentashield? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you recall, dear listener, back in Nefud's first meeting with Baron Harkonnen, we're told that Baron, quote, stared across the single glow globe of his bedchamber to the doorway where Captain Nefud stood blocked by the pentashield, end quote. Mm. Yeah. The terminology of the Imperium at the end of the first book actually provides us a definition a pentashield is a, quote, 
five-layer shield generator field suitable for small areas such as doorways or passages, and virtually impassable to anyone not wearing a dissembler tuned to the shield codes, end quote. Mm, interesting, yeah. Love that. Very high sci-fi concept, you know, yeah. a shield that you can only pass through if you have the disabler belt. The Dune Encyclopedia also adds that there are planar fields using five adjacent cyclically polarized fields, whatever the fuck <laughs> that means, Yeah, which basically just means that they need large complex generators to run. So pentashields are actually quite expensive and relatively rare, which is right. why we seemingly only come across them in a few instances. Right. Finally, to wrap up our morsel and this episode today... One more shield to go. We have the Prue door, which mm. is, again, another piece of tech we see back in Dune. Right. The terminology of the Imperium defines it as, quote, any pentashield situated for the escape of selected persons under conditions of pursuit. End quote. Jesus. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Again, there are very few mentions of a Prue door, but it does come up in that fade birthday scene in the Colosseum where he fights the slave and is protected by Prue doors. So seemingly if shit hits the fan and the slave is actually getting the upper hand, Fade can just duck back through the Prue door right. to safety. Right. He can escape under conditions of pursuit. The Dune Encyclopedia adds that these were used in hidden escapeways during the late imperial period. And that, again, much like the pentashields, they were hard to maintain. They were a pain in the ass to keep running. And you pretty much could only afford them if you were super, super wealthy. Right. The entry concludes by saying, quote, the harsh realities of imperial culture forced even the most powerful rulers to employ such sophisticated safety precautions, end quote. <laughs> Yeah. So your dukes, your barons, your duchesses, they had to pay for the Prue doors because you needed an escape path that you could get through that someone else couldn't follow you through. <sighs> Imperial culture, baby. <laughs> <laughs> sucks. Yeah. Might get killed. Run. <laughs> well, those are our morsels. <laughs> that does it. Got some shields done. Talked about Sufism. It's great. Mm -hmm. And... Listeners, dear listeners, My dear, God. dear listeners, for next episode, you should make sure that you've read up through uh -huh. the whole rest of the book. Damn. How good Damn. does that feel to say? Oh, I was looking forward to it. I was like really thinking about this the last couple of days. Yeah. Our long and wild journey through this book will finally come to a close. We're going to talk about the whole rest of the book. But we're going to save our, like, final thoughts and mailbag for a final, final episode that'll come after this next one. So finish the book. Join us <laughs> next episode. And we'll get through it together. We will indeed. Can't wait. Yeah. Fucking finish the book. Prove yep. you can. Cowards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Read wow, the whole okay. book. Okay. That got aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a jovial aggression.
Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lork Party Podcast Network on lorkparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path.